Welcome to the Pink Tax Podcast, a no-nonsense podcast for millennial women, building wealth and smashing the patriarchy, one dollar at a time, with your hosts, Janine and Tara. It's just me flying solo on the podcast today, but I would like to welcome our wonderful guest, uh, Michelle, who's been on the pod before. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my name is Red Thunder Woman. I said hello in Blackfoot. I always say um, my name and my um, greeting in Blackfoot because I'm on Blackfoot territory. So I'll start with acknowledging that um, right now I'm, I'm in actually Lethbridge and uh, this is still part of Treaty 7 and the Blackfoot Confederacy and actually south of the opposed U.S. Canadian border is the Blackfeet Nation. Uh, north of the border is Siksika, Ganai, and Bagani. And then Treaty 7 was signed in uh, 1877 with signatures that include the Wesley Chiniki Bears Nations of the Stoney and then the Dene from Sutina. I always acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit, status and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. And yeah, I'm really honored to be here. Oh, thank you so much. Um, so a little while ago, we had done an episode and Earth Alerts came up. Um, and Janine was not aware of what they are. I am a little bit what I've read in the news, what I've read in passing. Um, definitely not something that I've experienced or known anyone who has experienced. So we had kind of reached out to you to learn a little bit more about that. Yeah, that sounds great. I'm so grateful that you did. Uh, I think it's really important that Canadians understand the gravity of this conversation because today we have three times the amount of kids in foster care than we did at the height of residential schools. So just as we are judging our grandparents, our parents um, uh, for Indian residential schools and how could you let this happen? I absolutely promise you our grandkids and great grandkids are going to look at our generation right now and say, how could you have let this happen? So basically what had happened was, um, you know, the, the idea at the time of confederation was that we have to civilize the savages. That's the Canadian white British narrative. And, um, from our point of view, we had signed treaties with some newcomers in the idea we would continue to live our, uh, live our ways and share the land with the newcomers. So obviously, here we are, fast forward, uh, you know, 154 years later, and uh, we're not in either situation. Um, and as a result, our people have undergone quite a genocide and are continuing to live a genocide. So what had happened in the Indian residential schools was that there was there was policy changes that were happening. I would argue they were really coming because the Canadian government didn't want to fund it more than anything. Uh, there was a lot of advocacy by the Indigenous people to make some severe changes. So in, a, in about the 60s was when we got the right to vote, but we also um, started transitioning the Indian residential schools. 
And at that time, if you read the Truth and Reconciliation Commission volumes, like I always encourage people to, at the minimum, read the summary. And the hope is they read something in the summary that they'll go, oh, I want to learn more about this. And then the volumes are free online, but they're also at libraries. If you're a person like me, I have a really hard time with the PDF, but I love volumes. Like I'd love to hold a book. So my hope is, is that people will read through them. And if you do, you read basically the design and the setup of the 60 scoop. And the concept was that, well, if we can't, um, you know, train these kids our way, we'll just adopt them out. And they adopted our, our people out. Uh, I have friends in my age bracket right now that uh, one moved to Australia because at the time our, our children were being given internationally and to the Commonwealth, right? So, and our, our people were being treated as slaves in most situations. Um, so, you know, and, and the other component is this, this is really ugly. And, you know, I just want to give a bit of a warning for folks who might, might not be ready for this, but when the priests knocked up a lot of our, our people in the schools, they put them on a train, send them to um, Montreal or send them somewhere and, and say, no, you had a miscarriage uh, or you had a stillbirth and not tell them and then adopt the baby out. And that was just common practice. So that's why um, in my land acknowledgement, you'll hear me say, I always acknowledge all First Nation, Inuit status and non-status across Turtle Island because of that reason. The 60s scoop really um, severed a lot of people. I mean, we can't stop being brown. We can't stop having dark hair. We can't stop who we are. And we stick out like a sore thumb in a white family. So obviously what was happening was, um, you know, our, our people were being mistreated in a lot of those adoptions. So anyway, uh, fast forward to today, I'm still a uh, ward under the Indian Act. And as such, my uh, healthcare status is registered federally, which the average Albertan does not uh, happen. This does not happen to, right? They're like, your um, healthcare is through your province. My healthcare is through the federal jurisdiction. So that's a red flag. When you're, you know, have anti-Indigenous bias and you're a doctor, you're a nurse, you're a staffer at these hospitals, that's a red flag. And because it has been socially accept acceptable, um, you know, everyone is socially conditioned to have anti-Indigenous bias. Um, immediately, uh, child welfare is called into a situation. Um, in my case, what had happened was, even though I was married to, uh, you know, so-called white man he's not he's actually um a descendant of uh of a family his great-grandmother went to um, indian residential school as a result his grandmother and his i guess great aunt and great uncle they all were illiterate because after their experience they refused to send the kids to uh schools after what they had experienced so you know their life was a lot harder because they grew up in you know rocky mountain house alberta and were illiterate and, and <laughs> it's that's a hard life but in alberta we can kind of get away with it because as you all know out here in alberta you can have a great 10 um education work in the oil sands and make a hundred thousand dollars a year that's just normal here so right we anyway we've survived we're here um so anyway because my husband is non-status um you know, they did extra tests. They tested my daughter for AIDS, alcohol, drugs, um, all of the things. 
And people try to tell me, well, they do that to all kids. And I, I've met so many white women who've said they didn't do that to me and my, my baby when I was born. So, you know, I understand that some doctors and nurses may think they do it to everyone, but why is it I have so many people telling me the opposite? So anyway, they were really um, rude when they came to the house. Um, and the second time I just said, don't bother coming back anymore. And, uh, and they didn't. So, but for me, um, just the way I was treated at birth, giving birth, I should say. So um, it's interesting because it's the eve of my daughter's birthday. And, uh, you know, I, I had a long labor and I had a long labor because of the way I was mistreated in the, in the hospital. And, uh, you know, really, really demeaning. And I think that uh, anyone who's ever experienced sexism would understand that. You know, I, I've told many women, like, you know, when... You know, if someone looks through you and looks to your male counterpart or maybe your husband to answer a question because your answer is okay, but it's better coming from the man. Well, imagine always having that only with that racist lens or anti-Indigenous lens is what I tell people because um, no one likes to be called a racist, even though that's exactly what it is. Even progressives, you know, they don't think they're racist, but, you know, their bias so strongly comes through. So at any rate, a lot of um, folks don't have a white, so-called white husband to advocate for them. Um, you know, I was 30, I was drafting wells and pipelines. Um, I believed I was probably gonna go back to work within a year, but I actually, um, it, it was such an awful experience. I ended up in counseling and um, mm -hmm. my husband and I wanted to have more kids and of course chose not to. But anyway, aside from my story, that bigger picture is that um, a lot of families struggle with this. Uh, you know, if it looks like there's a single mother, there's a higher chance of a, a child apprehension. Um, if it's a, a teen, higher um, uh, chance of that. I had a fellow on and his they said he was no name so he named his book no name and the the problem was to like the records will always say oh mother gave up child for adoption and in some cases that may be true but most cases actually not is that that mother wanted that child but um knew that you know she had no rights no voice and they were just doing it to her. And that's generally yeah. what happens. And even in my birth, I felt like they were doing things to me, not with consent. Um, yes. So as a result, you know, these children get apprehended. So uh, as a way to try to counter that, a lot of indigenous have, uh, you know, aunties on standby and um, uh, folks in their life on standby saying, hey, we're gonna give birth really shortly. Um, we may need you to come in and record this because we know they're going to, like, for anyone who's ever dealt with a social worker, this, they, they smile, they nod, and they, they're like a bobblehead, and then they just ask invasive, awful questions, and then mm -hmm. just find a reason to apprehend the kids, like, they, they are, yeah. their intention is to apprehend the kids, and they do every time. So unless you have an army of people, and I would imagine during the pandemic, they're, you know, incapable of being able to do that because of the pandemic, you know, there were so many apprehensions. And then what happens is that these kids go into care and then they die. So every year there's a release of the numbers of the kids that have died disproportionately Indigenous adding to the genocide, right? And, um, and then these parents are told about the death. And... Um, in, in some cases, not all cases. And uh, nobody wins because in Canada, 
there is this strong belief that the police are there to protect us, that social workers are there to, you know, protect the child, and that nurses and doctors are wonderful human beings that deserve our love and respect. And I wish that was the case, but it's the exact opposite um, issue with Indigenous people that the police know they can get away with killing us, raping us, so they do. The doctors and nurses know that they can get away with dehumanizing us and calling us the mental cases, so they do. And social workers are allowed to apprehend our children. In fact, I would say social workers have more power than even uh, police, they're above the law. So, um, you know, it, it's really an intimidating situation to come into, mm -hmm. to even want to give birth in Alberta, in, in the um, situation that we have right now. And uh, that's the common experience for so many Indigenous people. And I hate it. And it has to stop. And I ran provincially, like focusing on all of, every year there's a new report that comes out that needs the changes within child welfare. And every year we don't do anything. And I'm sad because like the UCP put forward the Serenities Law and it wasn't even a recommendation that came out of the um, report that they had done, but they still did it. And they brought in Serenity's family and they made a big deal out of it. And it said that there was no substantial changes. And yeah. the law that they brought in was that actually the, a duplicate of the law that was already existing. Every single Albertan, if they even suspect something is wrong with the child, they're supposed to call and get it investigated. Every single Albertan, that is the law. That was the law mm -hmm. before Serenity's law. Serenity's law is that law with a new name called Serenity's law, but yeah. no new substantial changes there's so many recommendations to be put forward that aren't changing but the bottom line is, is and all of these reports other than the trc and the missing and murdered indigenous women inquiry um other than those reports all of the other ones just placate the racism they don't acknowledge that this is a, a fundamentally racist policy to go after indigenous babies and apprehend them from you know po postpartum mothers so of course we have depression and, and the inquiry especially showed the pipeline of how that leads to missing and murdered indigenous women. Because if I'm a mother and my child is apprehended and the system is so corrupt, you can never get your child back. So you don't get your child back. They get adopted out They're, Your child is brainwashed to believe that you didn't want them. Of course, you're going to learn, turn to a world of addiction and, you know, and then end up in a world where you may end up dead. And you, then you're just a stat to somebody. And then when a child who has been um, adopted and, you know, ages out of the system tries to reclaim who they are, find out their mother is dead, like they don't, they never get to hear it from their mom that that mom did want that child. So this is the current situation of genocide. And I say that because the, this is happening on purpose. This is purposeful. Mm -hmm. This is through policy that this is happening. And we've chosen to look away and not deal with the reality of this issue. Yeah. And I think, you know, as a, as a white woman who has given birth and friends with, with white people who have given birth, once you go into that situation, you understand that there's a power, a power dynamic, you know, as soon as you go in, you know, we talk about birth trauma and all of that kind of, all of those kind of things as well. And the importance of having an advocate, you know, and that's with just one power dynamic, right? And so I know that there are many provinces that have said, we will end the birth alert, but I think there's a problem if 
we acknowledge we live in a white supremacist society, which we do. We acknowledge that these policies and the procedures of taking the children away um, from a postpartum mom, sometimes in hospital rooms, have been going on for so long that we have people working in the medical industry who are used to treating people this way, you know? Yes. And so it's not enough just to say, we promise we won't do it anymore. If you have the ability to test a baby for AIDS, for drugs, for all of these things without any indication that the person carrying that child has any risk of those things other than indigeneity, it, that's, it's mind boggling. And I don't know how anyone who has given birth or anyone who has, you know, been near someone who has given birth cannot, you know, empathize with that at the very least. Yeah. 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 I, and, um, it, it was a real wake up call for me. That is actually literally what led me down the red road because, uh, in my twenties, you know, uh, witnessing my white father and my indigenous mom fist fight, you know, I, I needed counseling. So I spent my twenties learning about uh, domestic violence and feminism and trying to unlearn a lot of the you know brainwashing of inferiority that I had internalized but it wasn't until I had my baby and I couldn't explain what was how what had happened to me other than racism and mm -hmm. that was when I really started to unpack what racism was I mean I had dealt with racism up to that point but I just kind of laughed it off and, and made people feel stupid like because I, I grew up in Alberta and where I grew up, everybody was a big ass bully. So um, when people would say something derogatory about natives to me thinking I'm not native because of their cultural training of what a native looks like, I'd pull out my Indian card and go, really, is that what you think of all natives? And then that would usually result in them being shamed or feeling like crap. And I'd be like, whatever, like I didn't punch it in the face. So what's the big deal? Um, you know, but it, it helps humble people when they say really crappy things about natives when they don't even know somebody that they're with is native. And then when I had my girl, it was really obvious to me how bad racism was. You know, I, I had, um, I didn't really understand what systemic racism was despite living under the Indian Act. Like I just didn't really unpack that. And of course that's been my journey since. And as a result, you know, I'm quite loud about what I think of Canada society and the racism that they just normalize. And I try to really unpack that for folks who I, I know just don't see it. So mm -hmm. that's kind of a regular thing for me. But of course now we're in a situation where, you know, I have a, a daughter that's about to turn 14. And, um, you know, she wants her status and I don't blame her, but I told her like consent is consent. And I didn't consent to being mistreated. I didn't consent to, you know, being on a birth alert. I didn't consent to, you know, being told my entire life I would get a free education that never came, you know, like all of these like lies that are told about indigenous people to indigenous people and and um and i my biggest concern of course is that yeah we give her her indian status she gets it she gets mistreated for the rest of her life and her child gets apprehended for no reason um she's not identifying as straight right now so that would even complicate it i can't imagine a little lesbian indian walking in a hospital with a bunch of racists and not having her kid apprehended so you know, I'm, I'm really, I, I, I wish I could say 
she's inheriting a better world than what I got, but I, I don't think she is. I think it's just that racism manifests into different policies. And um, mm -hmm. I would really love to see Canadians see that they are guilty of benefiting from this racism. Um, and yeah. and it, it's so ridiculous. I'll tell you, it's more cost effective to take it down. And I'm saying this because I know that there are conservatives out there thinking, um, you know, well, what about that? Blah, blah, blah. So if I live in poverty, which is systemic through the Indian Act, they, they force that and um, socioeconomic um, stats prove that, uh, that is also because of racism and sexism. If I identify as Indigenous at a job interview, I more likely will not get that job, contrary to what people think. And then the other part is, is that if I'm in a job and I advocate for Indigenous people in any capacity, I become that woman of colour that eventually has to leave the organisation for not fitting in. Mm -hmm. So that, that is the reality for Indigenous women in the workplace. So um, we get discriminated at every single level. Anyway, um, back to the idea of getting Indian status. The idea of my daughter, you know, her her child being apprehended, like these are things that we cannot, I can't control this. And I need Canadians to understand that what they're doing is racist. Like that social worker that's in your circle, the nurse that's in your circle, the doctor that's in your circle. Yeah, I'm sure they can tell you a really super racist, awful story. But what they're not telling you is all of the policies, government policies that led up to that moment. Mm -hmm. You know, and the culturally appropriate services that are still not available for Indigenous people. If I want to pray to a Christian God and say, oh, my God, I'm such a sinner. Please give me food. Then I get food at a shelter. If I go, oh, my God, I'm such a sinner and I'm, my ways are so pagan, then they will give me a bed at a homeless shelter. And, you know, that that's not right, one. But two, how is that ever going to heal the trauma? That's leading mm -hmm. to the addiction, that's leading to the homeless, uh, houselessness, all of these things. So we need culturally appropriate services. And we've known this for a long time. Like we have come to the table with solutions in 1996 with the um, Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples in 2015 with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report calls to action. And now in 2017, we had 231 calls to justice in the National Inquiry Report. Like, the amount of um, provincial recommendations that are available for people, it, it, honestly and truly, because the general um, populace is so civically literate, illiterate, they don't even know these things. And I have to not mm -hmm. only know, you know, provincial politics, municipal politics, uh, federal politics, but also uh, indigenous politics, the ones that are colonial and the ones that are traditional. Like, that's a lot of pressure on me. And most people don't even know what a school trustee does. You know, so yes. like, <laughs> this is where we're at as a society, let alone imposing that, like and saying, look, these reports need to be implemented. You need to have the courage to implement this. And it would be more cost effective in the long run, because um, if my kid is apprehended, they pay people like, you know, 5,000 up to $5,000 a month to pay to take care of this kid and they don't even take care of them but like mm -hmm. that's an extreme amount with a child with uh, severe disabilities but um, you know that that's the point like if I'm in poverty and you can't give me you know $1,500 but you're willing to give a stranger $1,500 that's like 
incredibly erroneously wrong, right? Like we need to change the system so that the bare minimum, like what you would be paying a foster parent would be the same that you would be willing to pay an indigenous person. But then God forbid an indigenous person get out of poverty and, you know, become strong and raise a strong indigenous child who then has a strong indigenous voice. And that's why they don't. That like at the end of the day, it's as, as, as insidious as that, where we have people in power that know that. And they want to keep Indigenous people under their thumb and continue to blame mm -hmm. us for the problems that they've imposed on us. Yeah, yeah. And I, I did want to like dig in a little bit to um, the public money that's spent on these systems, because that's where our tax dollars are going. We are all paying into this. We're all complicit in it. And yeah. I think... Um, you know, because we do talk a lot about feminism and finance, this, this touches everyone, you know, and by funding these systems, the current systems that are, are just racist, like just very plainly white supremacist, um, not only would it be better, like you're saying, if you're apprehending a child who's living in poverty because they're living in poverty and then giving a foster family the money to support them, why would you not just give the family struggling in poverty the money for one? But that being said, we're spending so much money on the social workers, on all of these things, which like you're saying, folks that interact with these services have said they don't want them in this way. We're removing money that could be spent on better things and overfunding things that do not work and that the only point of them is to be racist. It's, mm -hmm. Once you know that, it's absolutely mind boggling. And I think, I hope something that our listeners will take away from this is that we do have to a certain extent choice of where our tax dollars are going and what is being funded. And we could say, hey, let's stop funding the foster care system as it is to make it better and like give parents money, give communities money. You know, we're talking about $10 a day childcare for everyone. Why are we not also talking about overhauling the funding for foster care systems? Right? And honestly, and it's so much more than, than mm -hmm. childcare ever could be. So that's the unfortunate part. Like we, but people talk about being fiscally conservative yet yeah, in this province specifically. Mm -hmm. And yet they, they show the opposite every chance they get, even federally, they do it when they're in charge. And I see where our money is going, it's erroneous. And I wish that people really um, held the, these people to account, but they don't because they're so civically illiterate uh, at mm -hmm. what the reality is right now. And I mean, look at all of this money right now that we're spending on curriculum changes over and over mm -hmm. and over again. Like it, this is, yeah. a, again, a gross amount of money, um, not to mention all of the other red tape that they've been creating with this new idea that we're going to pay to go to Kananaskis and we're going to pay for this and we're going to pay for that. Like these, they're literally making more red tape. They're making new mm -hmm. offices to oversee this. Um, and yet people eat it thinking, well, they're blue, so they must be right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I don't think... I mean, the veneer on that, in my experience, having grown up here, I think is just so thin because as soon as you start looking into it, as soon as you start looking into, you know, what user fees do, what progressive taxes would do, um, you know, who uh, is being affected disproportionately, 
-hmm. We're just paying a premium in this case to enforce white supremacist actions. And we're paying a premium to charge poor people more for the services that we all enjoy, whether it be Kananaskis or or transit or what have you. Um, The other thing I'm not sure if you saw, and I know you mentioned it, that there are more kids in care now then mm-hmm. we're in residential schools. I saw a story and I know it was confirmed that at least one child had an IUD placed in them under the age of 10 in British Columbia while in the foster care system. And that to me was devastating. It was absolutely devastating that my political power through voting and my tax dollars and everything that policy represents in this country went to inserting an IUD in a child. And why, why would you, why would you, the only reason would be if there is sexual abuse going on, which we know, which is documented in the foster care system. And, and like you're saying with the deaths that come out every year too, which The most egregious one that I have seen, and I haven't seen many, um, was that there was some sort of toy or blanket left in the crib with a baby under the age of one. And you're paying these people to take the children away from their parents and they left a blanket in the crib. I'm just not sure where my money is going. Do you know what I mean? I'm sorry to put that on you. No, not at all. And in fact, like, I do wish people understood there's zero accountability um, if you become a foster parent. I mean, most people think foster parents are saints, and I'm sure there are quite quite a few out there that are saints. But unfortunately, I deal with the folks that have been absolutely molested and raped by their foster parents repeatedly, sometimes videotaped, like, this is where our porn is coming from. And Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's no accountability for it whatsoever. And in fact, I would even argue it becomes more insidious where police get involved in such and they are part of the problem, not part of the solution. There are some mm-hmm. great cops out there that work on those solutions, but there are some really awful ones too that um, contribute to the problem. So, um, so imagine being a child and this is your reality, right? And so you wonder why an 11 year old will hang herself and kill herself. Well. What is her option after running away and running away? And even mm-hmm. with a lot of the missing, um, you know, children that are out there, like, there's some that I don't even want to share because I know she was just running away from her abuse. And um, and sometimes it's in these, um, they have, uh, you know, it's almost like dorms where it's like you have, you know, six dysfunctional kids that are raping each other and abusing each other and mistreating each other because none of them have family. They've all been dismissed. And in fact, I went to one funeral of this one girl and uh, just recently seen her mom. Actually, she came out here to visit. And um, when at the funeral, it was all of these kids that what happens once you age out, the government just turns you loose. So you have no education, you have no skills, uh, you have no income, you have no family, you have nothing. So some of them kind of come together and be their own family. And really clearly that was what was being said at this woman's funeral was that, you know, uh, we're the misfits and 
nobody loved us and we all loved her and she knows that and she was so loving to us. I just want to ask one more question that kind of um, ties into to what you were talking about in, in the story you were telling before my internet went down. Um, so kids aging out of the system. I was reading the, the BC report on basic income recently, and they said one of the hardest hit demographics for poverty is that particular age group the kids who are transitioning from youth to adulthood. And I'm thinking if folks transitioning from youth to adulthood that have parents, that have family, that have all these support systems, um, that don't have all of this trauma are struggling, what does it say about the kids that are trying to transition? And correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't the Alberta government just stop funding them at a lower age now? Yeah, and there used to be um, an understanding that the bare minimum that a foster child would receive is a university education, and they cut that too. So, like, these are really, you know, the slaves of the slaves to really, mm -hmm. you know, make Alberta work. And I, and it's not like it's morally corrupt. It a hundred percent morally corrupt and then fiscally corrupt. And then, um, you know, that bigger picture that we know that it's like 8% of the population taking 80% of the resources in the healthcare system. Well, if we properly funded only people without houses right now, we would be saving astronomically. And rather than dealing with that, they'd rather privatize healthcare and you know mm -hmm. cut all of the uh, union nurses out. And you know, um, they're I mean, doctors are leaving in in droves. And we have uh, I'm in Lethbridge, and not a single doctor is accepting new clients now. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and I can't blame them, right? So my uh, doctor in Calgary is all I have for now. And I'll just have to work with what we got. And that's what they want. That's what the UCP wants, because they want folks to be so outraged that they are happy to do private um, health care as opposed to properly funding the situation that we have. Uh, when I ran provincially, we had a an outreach done at a seniors care lodge and it was a wonderful presentation highlighting that basically out of our hospitals like the top a third of the hospital is just dedicated to seniors that if we had proper um you know health health care in seniors lodges we would be taking so much stress off of the healthcare system as well as saving us um a, a financial uh, windfall of money mm -hmm. So, you know, there's there's two solutions right there that would save us fiscally so much more, but we are incapable of doing anything but voting blue. And as a result, we are paying up the nose for services and not getting the adequate services that our seniors need and then not adequate services that people who are in poverty need. And, and it's absolutely unacceptable. There is no reason for that right now. Mm -hmm. No, there's absolutely no reason for it. Um... Well, I mean, other than just completely maintaining the system that that was enacted so long ago. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time with this one, though. I hope that we can chat again. Me too. Um, 
I heard that you have a book club. Is that a place that, you know, maybe folks like me or some of our listeners could learn and, and find out what we can read and discuss? A hundred percent. And actually, because um, my book club went online during the pandemic, you can even find some of our previous uh, book clubs on uh, Native Calgarian right now. So, you know, I really hope that people consider joining. Uh, it's through the Calgary Public Library at this time. And uh, we'll continue doing the Zoom. They're starting to push more um, in-person meetings, but I'm uncomfortable with that for two reasons. And um one, just because the government says it's time to open up everything doesn't mean me as an Indigenous person is comfortable with that in any capacity, knowing what crappy health care I receive compared to non-Indigenous people. <laughs> you know, um, I am double vaxxed. I wear a mask uh, a lot more than most people uh, in situations. And, you know, I, I didn't have to wear a mask since May long weekend because I got my second shot at the beginning of May. But um, I choose to because I know that we are not going to we're not going to get the threshold of vaccinated population before we have more variants. I know that. Mm -hmm. And then for that, in, I cannot believe we thought we should have stampede. Um, yeah, I think that's the poorest decision I have ever seen. And I hope that they got all of their provincial buddies to give them their provincial monies at all of the political events that they had, because that, that was nothing but an absolute political smokescreen. And I think that it was irresponsible. If mm -hmm. you truly care about the population you're voted to represent, that was an irresponsible decision. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And now having read a bit of the Stampede book that um, you were part of that panel, which was very, very interesting um, when she did the book launch, I was looking at it at, at a little bit of a different lens. And I thought, I hope that the turnout isn't very good because that would be, I, I hope that that's like kind of like the death knell of, you know, maybe the oil industry and of, uh, you know, however you want to call it, like petromasculinity and, and the intersection of white supremacy with that as well. Like that would have been nice, but apparently 500,000 people disagreed with me. So yeah, but it's the same people showing up for all 10 days. So I hope yeah. they enjoy their stampede COVID variant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the last stampede. I would be pretty cool with it. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh it, it's just, it was deplorable to me because, I mean, how can you possibly claim you are a family-friendly um, event when all kids under 12 do not have access to a vaccine? Exactly. Um, I, I just found that, like, and, until every person had an opportunity to have a vaccine, we can't open up anything. And then mm -hmm. to just be like, but the kids are disposable, so who cares about them? I, I, I will never forgive anyone in government for, for that decision. I mean, I thank God my child was able to access one of the vaccine shots. Um, she's due to get her second one next week. Um, but it's not the point. That, mm -hmm. That's not the point. There is too many people who hadn't got their second dose. And even once we had, you know, a good 85 threshold percentage of the population having two shots, then we could consider opening up, you know, maybe a public school or something like that. But it, it's yeah. just deplorable to me. I, I'm so, I, I can't even believe that people would vote for the folks like this, let alone agree with them. 
And, and yeah. you know, this is somebody who fought for uh, legalization of cannabis because to me, like I actually care about health freedom. Um, I fought and got um, a midwifery funded in Alberta, thanks to Manny Bular. Uh, that's a part of the hands are like, that's health freedom. That's actual mm -hmm. health freedom. Wearing a mask is not an oppression. <laughs> I can't even believe that that was a, a thought in the pandemic. It just showed me the absolute ugliness of our population. I yeah. have never been so disappointed in our population than seeing people fight to, you know, not wear a mask when there's so many vulnerable people around them that need mm -hmm. them to until, and like I, I would wear my mask until we have, like every kid has access to a second shot, but every kid doesn't even have access to one shot. So it, I just, it blows my mind. It's either you understand science or you don't. And clearly Albertans don't. And clearly that's why, um, you know, the UCP is fighting to have such a stupid, dumbed down curriculum so that we can keep this population so redneck, dirt poor. And yeah. it, it's deplorable. Yeah. yeah. And I think dirt poor and fighting against each other for my upbringing here. That's what yeah. I really think it is so that we can continue to be divided along identity lines, basically. Yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's unfortunate. Oh, it's deplorable. I, I, like, I was born and raised here. Um, my husband, second generation, born and raised here. I, I just don't understand how we've allowed our politicians to make these incredible decisions. And I, I even federally, I mean, I, I would have, you know, disagreements with, with, with what they did federally, but compared to what we're seeing provincially, I just can't even. So yeah. yeah yeah exactly exactly anyway so thank you so much for having me yeah thanks for accepting the invite um hopefully next time we speak i can get this internet thing uh sorted on my computer and janine will be with us to keep me on track um but this was this was really great and i hope uh, more folks check out your book club and everything else that you're doing because it's really good work Oh, thanks so much. And thanks for having me back. And, you know, solidarity always when it comes to fighting for women's issues. So let's hope we can move forward in a good way. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Let us know what you think on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Pink Tax Podcast is recorded in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. Our music is provided by Margot. You can find her work at noisebymargot.com. Sound editing by Peter Dobson. If you'd like to support the Pink Tax Podcast, you can make a donation at liberapay.com slash podcast and submit a five-star review on Apple Podcasts.
Oh, I should share this with you real quick. Just this just funny story. My daughter, um, I was telling her because, you know, it's her birthday coming up. And I said, I was really influenced by this American Mommies Forum. And I said, in the States, honey, you have to save $30,000 before having a kid because it costs a minimum $10,000 if you have any complications, 20. And if you have to have a cesarean, $30,000. And she looked at me and I said, unless you join the military and then you have coverage. So she's like, you have to bribe people to join the military in order to get out coverage. So her reaction was hysterical and I was hoping to remember it, that story to be able to tell you because I thought yeah. you out of all people would appreciate the gravity yeah. of that story. <laughs> no, I, I love it. I, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, so they got to get that together. But. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. I don't want to get there. Let's say that. <laughs> no, exactly. We need to fight for our healthcare system big time. You don't yeah. want to be laboring in parking lots and trying to time our births to knock off $500 off the bill. And no. that's not considered a red flag to apprehend a child. I'll just say that. <laughs> Anyway, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. And I had a great time as always. Yeah, I had a great time too. Nice speaking with you. Thanks so much. All right, you take care.